welcome to the third episode of Earth to Philosophy. Right now, you have more and more people realize, okay, can we really remove this carbon from the atmosphere? What would it take? Is it a good idea? I think it's generally agreed that it's a good idea, but the devil's in the details of how you do it. You could definitely do it in ways that make a lot of people worse off. Welcome to Earth to Philosophy, a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. This is your host, Andrea Gammon, and today I'll be speaking with Holly Jean Buck, writer and fellow at UCLA. We'll be discussing climate engineering, which is also known as geoengineering, and we'll be talking about two works by Holly. Just a quick note about the audio of the interview. I had a little trouble with recording, so you might hear a few places where the sound cuts out for a second or two. Sorry about that. Another thing to mention is that I'm alone for this interview, but the episode does feature a question from Mitausch, who you might remember from episode two. Okay, let's get to the interview with Holly. Today on Earth to Philosophy, I'll be speaking with Holly Jean Buck, who is a fellow at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. She got her PhD in developmental sociology from Cornell, and she has an MSc in in human ecology. Holly researches a wide range of topics related to environmental change, sociology, and emerging technologies, especially geoengineering or climate engineering, and its social and political dimensions. Holly and I co-authored a paper on the gendered aspects of geoengineering, and today we'll talk about two of her publications. One of them is a few years old. It's um, a paper that was published in Development and Change in 2012, titled Geoengineering, Remaking Climate for Profit or Humanitarian Intervention. And also we'll talk about um, the prelude and the first chapter of a book that Holly's written that's coming out next year that's titled After Geoengineering. And it's coming out um, in 2019 from uh, Verso Press. So welcome, Holly. And I should also say that Claire is not on this interview today, so it's just you'll just be hearing the voices of me, Andrea, and Holly. Uh, so welcome, and thanks for joining us or joining me for the podcast. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> over Skype. Um, is there anything that you'd want to add in way of the research that you've been doing more recently in this in this fellowship position or in general that I didn't explain? I thought that was a pretty decent intro. I'm, I'm starting to think a lot more about other emerging technologies as well um, okay. and carbon removal, but still thinking a bit about solar geoengineering too. Okay. And do you, um, in my questions so far, I've used geoengineering and climate inter- engineering interchangeably, but is there, do you use one more than the other or do you see a difference between these terms? I think climate engineering, um, people tend to know what it means more often. So I think it's a better term uh, in that regard. There are ways in which both of these umbrella terms aren't helpful in specific contexts. And it makes more sense to talk about particular methods or techniques. Mm-hmm. But th- then there are times where the umbrella terms make sense to use. So we'll probably get into some of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so if I, I'm probably just going to use them interchangeably. Um, yeah, I sort of agree that that when you say climate engineering, that 
sort of paints a picture for people more clearly than geoengineering does. But yeah, yeah, we can talk about that as we go. I met you through working on geoengineering, but I never really asked you how you came about researching this topic. When did your interest in this begin and what kind of projects or what kind of research sparked it for you? Yeah, I came to it actually as a, a fiction writer, curious to know more about this thing that sa- that sa- sounded really speculative. And in 2009, I went to a meeting in Washington of the at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank, talking about geoengineering. Um, and I was surprised to see that the room was packed with people from really elite think tanks, top universities, et cetera, who are all taking this quite seriously. And I just kind of shown up to get more vivid details for a story I hope to write about it. And, and was quite alarmed, really, to see that level of engagement and particularly the, the questions being asked. You know, it was three guys in suits on the panel and, and somebody asked them a question. How are people in other countries going to think about this? And they were like, oh, well, we, we really have no idea about that. And that seemed to me something uh, definitely worth exploring. So as I headed to grad school, I, I had that question still in my mind and wanted to add to some knowledge on that, at least. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could give a brief overview of what climate engineering is and bring us up to date on how climate engineering which I sort of take to to also include carbon removal technologies, how this sits in regard to current policies on the climate and agreements and assessments. Yeah, so the umbrella term of climate engineering has been used to describe activities that are intentionally to change the climate at a global scale. So a local project by itself wouldn't be climate engineering. It's really means something, a global scale climate intervention to cool the earth. And people generally mean one of two things. Either they mean solar geoengineering techniques, which aim to reflect incoming sunlight to cool the planet, or they mean carbon removal technologies um, or practices that are sucking up carbon from the atmosphere and storing it somewhere, whether that be in plants, in the soil, or underground. So those are very two different things. They work very different differently, but they're both considered climate engineering in, in various contexts. And so I think that what we've seen recently is a growing awareness of how getting to these temperature targets laid out in the Paris Agreement, the two degrees or the aspirations for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees even in model simulations, those have relied upon large-scale use of carbon removal technologies. So by that, by that I mean these models or, or storylines or imaginations about how we limit warming imply that we're removing large amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. So right now, current carbon emissions are about 40 gigatons or 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide um, every year from human activities. And in order to limit warming, these emissions have to peak basically right away and then come down. And after they zero out, which in an idealized scenario would be somewhere at the end of the century, maybe around 2070, 2080, 
emissions have ceased, then they, they would go negative. So we would actually be starting to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And by the end of the century, we'd be removing 10 gigatons. Now, this is all very speculative because we're not doing any kind of amount of carbon removal right now. I mean, it's just a couple million tons from carbon capture and storage. So basically, there's a, about 20 facilities operational right now where they capture carbon from power plants at an industrial scale and pipe it underground to be stored. So that that's a technology that's existed for a couple of decades um, used in the oil and gas industry. It's known how to do it, but scaling that up to the level required would involve kind of an infrastructure, the scale of today's fossil fuel industry. It would be all these pipelines, all these disposal sites, um, all these power plants where the carbon is captured or capturing it directly from the air. So a huge, huge industrial project that these models imagine um, taking place to keep warming to these safe levels. Yeah, it seems like, at least in the way that I get news about promises and aspirations regarding climate change and, and especially COP24, etc., and, and all of these kinds of agreements, I was really surprised when I read recently, and then I read again in your in the first chapter of your book, about how extremely reliant these models are on this technology that's only in its infancy and how much it will have to be so central in achieving <laughs> livable climate futures even like within this century. Yeah but I think right now you have more and more people realizing that that situation. <laughs> yeah. Started saying okay can we really remove this carbon from the atmosphere? What would it take? Is it a good idea? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think it's generally agreed that it's a good idea, but the devil's in the details of how you do it. You could definitely do it in ways that make a lot of people worse off. One of the themes of your work that's present in both of the both the article from 2012 and also the first chapter or the prelude in the first chapter of your upcoming book is that even if we think climate engineering is quite a scary or really undesirable outcome or option that environmentalists or people in general who care about the livability of the planet can't really afford to just ignore geoengineering as an array of options and that seem to suggest that we even have a kind of responsibility in thinking seriously about geoengineering not to just get on board with it necessarily but to play a role in thinking about what the vision for it should be and actually shaping that vision rather than allowing maybe a few very powerful interests to shape what geoengineering becomes. The point is that it's not enough just to dismiss it out of hand as a kind of technological fix or just a fake kind of solution to climate change, but that we have to engage it. And we can do that in really productive ways. And I think that your work does that it starts to ask way more interesting questions about what a geoengineered future might be. So can you talk a little bit more about this central argument, I think, that's in your work and how you see your work doing this in your papers or in your in this book or also just work that maybe is more outreach based? Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about carbon removal first, because I think they're pretty different. Okay. Um, I think that 
you know, if we have the capacity to remove carbon from the atmosphere and store it safely, which it looks like we probably do, then it's kind of immoral not to try to do that since we know that the carbon being in the atmosphere is causing harm to people around the entire world, especially people in the global north who have benefited from burning carbon in, in the U.S., who have the technological capacity to do some of this carbon removal. I think that's kind of a moral obligation. But the, what happens if, if people don't get involved and people just push that aside, then the, the incentives, the regime, the policies, it all gets set up so that the benefits from doing it will also flow to the 1% and they orchestrate it, they arrange it in a way that favors them and perpetuates inequality. I mean, I could see that happening as kind of a default if environmentalists and climate justice folks and people who care about social justice just don't get engaged with it. That's mm -hmm. what I would see happening. Then when it comes to solar geoengineering, you know, I think that's a hard question. And I do think it's worth researching. And it's worth researching not just by the 1% in elite universities. It's worth researching by people all around the world, giving some amount of attention to it, not in a way that overpowers other really important research we could be doing, but some small amount of, of research around the globe, I think, would be useful. Um, because otherwise, what it is and how it's done and how it's investigated gets framed by, again, this small constellation of actors. And I don't think that's a healthy outcome. And I think we need to know what climate impacts it might be able to ameliorate, what imp other impacts it would have. Because there is uncertainty around climate change. We don't know what the worst case scenario might be that we're headed for. And I think it would be worth knowing to what degree geoengineering might help and in what context. But I think the other really important thing here is to think about not just should somebody start a solar geoengineering intervention and what impacts that would have, but how would you end that intervention? So by that, I mean solar geoengineering is really coupled with carbon removal. You can have carbon removal without solar geoengineering. That's probably the best case option, it looks like now, but it's all dependent on the context, right, and how bad climate change turns out to be. But if you're going to do solar geoengineering, you need to remove carbon and bring down greenhouse gas concentrations if you want to end that solar geoengineering. Otherwise, you're just stuck with it indefinitely. And that I see as a really dangerous place to be, because if you terminate a solar geoengineering intervention without removing carbon, the warming you've been suppressing comes back. And that, that rate of change is not something other species or our own could probably adapt to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and right now people aren't really thinking about, um, you know, how you would remove carbon in conjunction with solar geoengineering because it's too speculative. And the people want to say, you know, we're just doing research on this. Mm -hmm. um, we're not thinking about deploying it. But I think that, you know, you have to think about these things when you design the research. Yeah. Right. I think if more people participate, then those questions get asked more often. Right. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the remaking climates paper. So the thing that I find like the most interesting, which I've kind of already alluded to, is that this effort of trying to think about geoengineering cast in a different way than it seems to be presented mainly, which is this kind of big technological intervention 
that is monolithic and not well researched and the environmentalists worst fear of um, solving climate change. So what you do in the paper instead, your, your argument is not, oh, it should, we should only see it in this way, but the practice of trying to imagine it as it itself having power to transform social ecological issues in a good way rather than just being negative. What I like so much about this paper is you try to imagine geoengineering as possibly, quote, restructuring socioecological systems in ways to improve energy access, land tenure, and food security, end quote. And so it's a kind of socially transformative geoengineering. So maybe you could talk about some of the ideas that went into that paper. And maybe because it was 2012, if you still have, if maybe you've uncovered or found new dimensions of this kind of thinking, or if maybe some of the things you thought would be more potential haven't planned, haven't panned out to be or something like that, just kind of reflections since then, because a lot, I think a lot has changed since, since it was written. Yeah. So in terms of being socially transformative, um, you know, I was mostly writing about carbon removal there and solar geoengineering to the extent that, you know, what if it could buy more time to scale up carbon removal and keep us from being, you know, in a really bad place in terms of climate change, which is a huge if. But but what we've seen since 2012, you know, when I wrote that, I'd say regeneration and regenerative agriculture wasn't as much of a movement as it is now. And so what what we have now, it, which is pretty exciting, is lots of different groups um, talking about this vision of, you know, changing land use and land practices to store carbon in soils, to do, you know, agroforestry, to use products uh, made with carbon, to doing biochar and all of this really kind of to regenerate not just the land and have influence on the carbon cycle, but also to regenerate communities. And so those people would not say, you know, we're, we're doing geoengineering or we're thinking about geoengineering for the most part. Although they do say, you know, some of them, we need to do this to draw down carbon concentrations and maybe we can draw them back down from 408 or whatever down to 350 or 300 or some kind of crazy number. So there, there's there's things about the math there that probably I think don't work out in terms of what you can accomplish with um, biological or natural climate solutions alone. But leaving that aside for a moment, I think that what we've seen in the last, you know, five or six years is this kind of vision become more prominent as people realize the situation that we're in as pe as the book draw down popularized the idea of drawing down carbon there really has been a flourishing of of discourse and ideas and projects about that which is kind of similar to what i wanted to articulate in, in that paper back in 2012 <laughs> yeah yeah so maybe one more question related to the paper because there's so much emphasis in these kinds of strategies as being local and decentralized and responding to particular places and particular communities, like let's imagine that those really flourish and that's that's great for lots of reasons. How do those then relate to larger global governance structures that we know that we need in order to address climate change on this global scale, which is necessary? Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing that a lot of people are thinking about, right? That's why I think the regional level 
when it comes to carbon removal, the regional level is really important because you have state states that set up incentive structures for farmers like, you know, California or Maryland or the province of Alberta or whatever that, that are working on that kind of level. Then you, you have regional level grid utilities that are thinking about these things. You've seen different states regulate uh, carbon capture in different ways. And then, then there's this kind of disconnect between these, you know, can the state of California solve climate change by itself? You know, no, but it, it does it does make a big difference. And I think that what we'll see in the next, you know, five years is is some kind of framework. And well, I shouldn't make predictions, but I know it's definitely coming soon at the UN level agenda about how do you think about negative emissions? How are those kind of accounted for? And and you you've seen, you know, the struggles they had around Red Plus, you know, accounting for carbon six with forests. And it's it's gonna be more of those types of struggles with nations arguing for slightly different things. But I I imagine in the next decade there will be some framework around that. I don't see how it could how it could not happen really. Yeah. I really liked the point you made in I think it was the prelude about this kind of squabbling over who gets to take credit for negative emissions. I had not thought about that dimension of this, that that people will want to be taking credit for these things when maybe they are overreaching and who gets a share of that credit. That's the thing about these residual emissions, right? So the imagination of Shell quite plainly and other oil companies and other industries is that you know, we're going to have these residual emissions for a long time because aviation and these other sectors are too hard to decarbonize, you know, heavy industry. And so the negative emissions that we remove are just going to compensate for their continued emissions. And what's going to be hammered out in the next few years is the framework for that. And that's why I really hope for more civil society actors to be involved in deciding that framework, because I don't know if it'll be easy to change once they've, like, written it out you know yeah maybe now would be a good time to segue into the book and maybe you could give an overview or just a a short description of the book especially because it's what you've been working on recently I, I take it and also because I've only read I read the prelude in the first chapter but that's a fraction of really what there is yeah so this book is kind of a look at what some of the better case scenarios for geoengineering might be and how difficult it will be to realize a better case scenario. So it's kind of bookended by these sections about solar geoengineering and what a best case solar geoengineering intervention might look like. And then the middle of the book is really just about different carbon removal approaches, familiarizing people with them, asking questions about how to design them in ways that people benefit Um, that communities benefit, that workers benefit. And so there's a section about the after zero society. Okay, so imagine that we drew down carbon emissions. What would society look like? What would it take? You know, what would the cultural values of a society really dedicated to drawing down emissions look like? What would it feel like to live there? So that's that's the book. It's, it's, It's about not just, you know, the point up to geoengineering, but what a world after geoengineering might be like. Yeah, what I've read is really great. 
first of all, there are two important things that I want to point to. And first is the way in which you are able to weave kind of fiction and speculative accounts into what is otherwise nonfiction work, that it's through those kinds of, I don't know what you call them, but like detours or imaginative sections the fiction of the work, that you can really get a glimpse of what some of these issues might feel like in a day-to-day way. In a little bit, we can talk about the kind of approach you have of combining more narrative and speculative approaches in this work. So when I when I introduced you, I said that you work on emerging technologies. And then when I was reading in the first chapter, you argue or you want to say that we shouldn't think of geoengineering, sorry, climate engineering as merely a technology. So maybe you could explain a little bit what you mean there and expand on how this framing isn't adequate to understanding what geoengineering is. Yeah, I think it's one way to understand it, but there's also other lenses that we get other insights from. So, you know, I talk about it being a program because it happens through time and, and it's a designed, you know, temporal intervention. And when you when you understand that dimension of it, you can think about the choices that would be made designing the program. And you can think of it as a, a development intervention or a humanitarian intervention. I mean, a program has goals that you measure, right? So the goal ostensibly that the way people think of it is like, oh, the goal is this thing about global mean temperature. But you know, you can you can have other goals in mind. I mean, we have sustainable development goals, a whole bunch of them. So, you know, those are the other types of goals you might want to think about at the same time as designing that program. Um, you can think of it as infrastructure because, you know, even even solar geoengineering would have some material infrastructure and that needs to be maintained. There's a maintenance question. Carbon removal, definitely, it's, it's a lot more clear thinking about the the weight of that, the care, the people that will be involved in the infrastructure. And and the social infrastructure, too, is hugely important and gets glossed over. You could think about climate engineering as a relationship. um, And the way it's normally construed is this kind of command and control relationship. But I don't think it has to be that if if more awareness is brought to it, um, more of a, a listening dimension. There's probably a lot more ways to think of it that, that I haven't even mentioned in, in my book. Uh, but but some of the things I thought about, you know, is practice. Um, but then a kind of a repetitive activity, but but something that maybe you bring attention to at the same time. Something that you get better at <laughs> over time. Yeah. I liked one of the things I really like. Um, this is just a small piece of the prelude, but um, normally when geoengineering is explained even in a cursory way, it's, I mean, it's just explained as like a scientific technology and it's, and kind of dryly and always with a focus on like what it's intended to do. And one of the things I really liked in the, in just the prelude was how you were talking about solar radiation and explaining geoengineering and SRM, solar radiation management, as a form of geoengineering, but also talking about just off the cuff, other ways in which the sun and solar radiation is central to the ways in which people just live their lives. And that was embedded in just a beginning definition of what this topic is. 
I think by focusing on elements that aren't just the often mentioned two degrees or these kinds of like metric based ideas and reminding us, oh yeah, like the sun is like this central thing in our lives. We spend, we design our buildings around it. Even we design our rooms around it. Like we want like natural light and these just these kinds of reminders of how, how geoengineering maybe intercedes in those or maybe doesn't or but those kinds of elements I think you bring out really nicely. There's a question sort of related to that about if we think of geoengineering in different ways, so not only as a sort of a command and control technology, but also maybe as a practice or something like that. Are there ways that you've already encountered or can you imagine ways in which maybe in an everyday way, geoengineering ends up bringing us kind of like it, maybe it introduces new kinds of rituals or new kinds of practices that perhaps engage us more in a nature that's external to us. It's normally presented as this kind of technological intervention that's like well, yeah, par excellence, right? That like separates us or even further from the natural world. But maybe actually, and I imagine that through carbon dioxide removal technologies, for instance, and some of these smaller practices, actually maybe these are new ritualistic ways that that engage people in their communities or in the natural world. Is that something that you could imagine happening? This is something I struggled with while writing the book because it was really easy for me to imagine that in, in rural um, settings. And so a lot of the fictional sections that take place take place in, in rural settings because that's where carbon removal will happen. Um, and it was a lot harder to imagine kind of the relationship somebody in an urban setting would have with these practices. Yeah. So there's like a consumer relationship, right? So, you know, I talk about um, there's a place near where I live where you can go to get pizza that's made with a grain that's grown regeneratively. That's the crust. Then there's a that was like designed to have long roots that sequester more carbon and you know it's kind of like this you know the north face now has some products um made with california regenerative wool that you could buy right so i can see there's there's an aesthetic there's like this new appreciation of rural goods kind of california instagrammable aesthetic that people would feel a part of via their consumer choices you know, that's not really, um, maybe that's not transformative. It, sociologically, it's very interesting, but I'm not sure where it leads us yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think it has to even be transformative, but just like the idea that even in these maybe superficial consumer ways that this already, like that this idea of carbon storage becomes a kind of environmental consciousness is, is like you said, like already kind of an interesting possibility, right? I'm not as good at, at doing this kind of speculative imagining as you are, but it seems like if you did have a kind of SRM, like large scale deployment of geoengineering, it probably wouldn't have even these kinds of superficial ways of working into people's everyday lives. Um, maybe it would. I don't know. But it seems like it would be harder to imagine what even those could be, whereas the smaller scale, more practice based thinking of geoengineering maybe has as a function of being practice based. It has to be more integrated and just 
the everyday lives of at least some people in order for it to be a kind of practice. I have a question from my friend Matouche. Most of your work focuses on this kind of social dimension and social meaning human. And he agrees that that's very important and maybe should be central in our considerations of climate engineering. But he also wants to know about what you might have thought about for non-human species and other ecosystems or things where the human isn't centric and how this dimension bears on even conversations about carbon dioxide removal or geoengineering more generally. Yeah, I've thought about this a little bit. I have a chapter in a book about ocean legalities that, that thinks a little bit about what geoengineering means for the life in the oceans, because it's been pretty much ignored. And in fact, I mean, people still don't have a handle on what, you know, reflecting 1% of incoming sunlight would do to plant life and, you know, all the animal life that depends on plant life. It's been really, really underexplored. And I I hypothesize that that's because ecologists look at this idea and they just think this is so crazy. It's not even worth like doing research on. It's such a bad idea from from their vantage point. Right. But the unfortunate thing is that there's not a lot of information to go on then without that research. So I actually think that that one of the reasons I take climate engineering somewhat seriously as a prospect is I'm interested in what it could do um, for non-human life. But that isn't even really part of kind of the starting point for research. I mean, the starting point for research isn't even human life. It's global mean temperature, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. So there's a few there's a way a long way to go before that becomes. But, you know, one thing I was interested in in this project I did in in Finnish Lapland and in terms of what people cared about with regards to climate change impacts, you know, people there were really worried and concerned about what would happen to reindeer under climate change. And and that became a point of conversations for, you know, how do we include these concerns for other species into the design of our research questions in the beginning? Yeah. As with the other parts of your research, you can make the argument that look, people who work on non-human species should also be taking these conversations or the prospect of geoengineering more seriously because there's such a dearth of real research or just even attention to these questions. Maybe we could finish up with some questions about your your approach that brings fiction into your research as well. Your, this isn't your first book. You have, you've written a novel, I think, even before before you were in graduate school. So maybe you could talk about how you combine an interest in fiction that focuses on environmental questions and presence and futures with the work that you've done on climate engineering? And could you speak more about this kind of, I don't know, um, interweaving of these ideas in this fiction form and maybe speak sort of about what the what you see as being the power of that kind of writing? Um, maybe it attracts different audiences or has a different kind of imaginative potential? Yeah, so as as you observed, kind of the key argument of the book is that geoengineering isn't a technology, like like an artifact, like that's separate from its context. I mean, it's really any decision you can imagine making about geoengineering would be very much informed by the context in which it would be used. 
And in order to understand those contexts, you have to describe them. And fiction is, I mean, I think the best tool for that, for me. Obviously, other people use modeling scenarios as the to describe the context, but I don't think you really grasp the range of issues with that. That's what I hope to accomplish, is just kind of showing the different possible contexts and then the implications that would follow from using geoengineering in different contexts. It also just makes it really interesting in a way that a lot of academic writing, and not just academic writing, just writing about climate policy or climate decisions just is not. But yeah, it really does bring it much more vividly to life. Yeah, yeah. the thing about climate engineering is when people talk about using it, they're not thinking about the other technologies that will have also matured in that time span. They're not thinking about other trends that we unfortunately see, like, you know, rising inequality, um, a turn towards authoritarianism around the globe, it seems. So, you know, if you're just kind of projecting it onto this blank, empty future, it looks one way. But if you're filling in that future with other extrapolations of trends, it looks another way. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the danger is you can never capture all of those trends. But I think it's the work of the analyst and the, the writer and the poet to think about, you know, some of them. Yeah. Are there particular authors who you read who either do the same kind of work of like combining these like a narrative approach with not even just environmental, but kind of futuristic questions about the environment or about society or who are, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even have to be com combination. It could just be also fictional writers who are working, whose work you find also insightful or to take this form and illustrate what its power is. You know, when I was doing my MFA in, in writing and poetics ages ago, I took a class in hybrid forms. And I've been thinking I should revisit my notes because the hybrid form is a really interesting form. But the, the incentive structure of academia and journalism and, you know, the publishing industry doesn't really lend itself to experimenting with hybrid forms very much. So unfortunately, I don't have a great you know, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I don't have a great collection of examples of, of where I think it's worked really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like count the number of pages that are fiction based and count the number of pages that are nonfiction based in your in what I've read. But it seemed like the pos the possibility of just like sneaking the kind of imaginative work into a like a bigger work of nonfiction, like might be a promising solution to that, right? This is a book with verso. It's not, it's not a novel, like, but still you're succeeding at bringing these narrative forms into this work, which I think is really cool. And it would be great to read more of that kind of stuff on, on geoengineering, but then on other topics too. Yeah, I think the fiction is only maybe 10% of the book by page or word count. But one thing that really amazed me is how economical the fiction is compared to the nonfiction. You can just get so much more in there. Like there, there are a couple of passages where I had, you know, listed, you know, we need to do X, Y, Z and 
these things would be good. And and it was just like this really long, boring list passage. And I, I was like, okay, if I just did this in fiction, it would take like one page and it would add so much more. Yeah. And just be so much, like so much more evocative than reading a list. It's very true. I don't know if you mean this to be written for a more general audience than the people who read your other academic work, but like, already this gives people more like people who aren't just interested in reading academic papers this gives them more than than most nonfiction books do so I think that's also a really good way to like to get people really actually starting to think about geoengineering and not just the people who are already doing it in academic circles or in elite universities but generally too is there anything that we haven't covered that you would want to talk about well I guess I want to emphasize that it's going to really be a struggle and an important one to build out carbon removal infrastructure and practices in a way that favor people. And the main thing I didn't mention in in this conversation that's very relevant is um, right now, most industrial carbon capture is used for enhanced oil recovery. So captured carbon is used and injected into oil wells to get out more oil. And that's why we, we've had a bipartisan coalition um, in the U.S. that's gotten some some legislation passed around, you know, tax credits for, for this is because it's an interest of some actors in the oil industry. And to bend that around and, and have to have the, the profits not go back to the industry that has been profiting off of this whole thing is going to be a big political struggle. And it's one that I hope everybody will get engaged with. Yeah. Are there specific avenues that you think are particularly effective aside from the main ones of, I mean, speaking in a U.S. context of like voting, of being in contact with your representatives and trying to be present as much as possible in smaller scale democratic processes like town meetings and these kinds of things. So those are kind of like, I think the basic ones. Are there others that you think are especially worth highlighting in this context? I mean, I think supporting NGOs who are engaging with this is is always a good idea. And some of them, like, you know, Clean Water Action has been doing reporting, drawing attention to the quality of carbon dioxide uh, disposal wells, for example. So there are groups that are are doing this work that can be supported. Um, Great. Yeah, that's good. If people want to follow your work, is there a good place to do that? Um, maybe on Twitter. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, that might be the best for like updates on the book. It, it'll hopefully be out in September. So that's exciting. Yeah, I'm not the first to make this point, but for too long, like the kind of leftist movements and the environmental or an environmental movement of some kind have not been aligned in any meaningful way. And if even maybe contradicted the aims of the other in a lot of cases. And so the the more that these two movements can intersect and complement each other is really promising, I think. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to reading the book in its entirety. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Earth to Philosophy. Our website, again, is www.earthtophilosophy.com. Feel free to send us an email with thoughts or questions or topics or people you'd like us to cover.